0: We don't really have a dream, per se, or maybe this is a dream. We're very pragmatic. And again, the Steady Eddie thing is that we do a very specific thing. We do it really well. And we're very tight with our customers. Like we have 800 who we talk to like kind of regularly, you know, and our dream is just to continue to deliver a really good product that's really useful for this really small specific segment.
1: Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Joining me today is Andrew Wallace. He's the managing director and CPO of Smileback. Smileback is a simple-to-use customer satisfaction platform that is deep on insights. Previously, he was the director of product management at Chef's Plate, and Chef's Plate was acquired by the German meal company HelloFresh in 2018. Today, you'll hear Andrew's thoughts on the importance of knowing and having a shared vision. How Chef's Plate planned to exit with a certain buyer in mind, who ended up not being the buyer in the end. How sometimes the business needs to build unique technology in-house. Why simple dreams are good. And what Andrew's learned from his experience at Chef's Plate and transferred to Smileback. And more. Let's jump in. It's a really nice day to in Berlin. The weather is insane it's
0: gorgeous
1: here it's unfair really to everyone
0: wonderful
1: thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) something that i learned about andrew is that he likes to talk with his hands and he wears jewelry so if you hear that it's the mic is awesome and he's getting really excited so hopefully you enjoy that bit too yeah (laughs) So let's get started. Previously, you were the director of product management at Chef's Plate and now the CPO at Smileback. What's that journey been like for you?
0: Very interesting, I guess, as any transition is. So Chef's Plate was a unique experience in that it was like the first to market with meal kit delivery in Canada. And so we had a really strong first mover advantage there, but the leadership was very very gritty, which was great, but also very young. And so some of the strategic decisions and, you know, we talked about this when they hired me, the business had already existed for four years before they even hired a director of product, like before they hired anyone in product, which is, they agreed was, was a strategic mistake in terms of hiring. So there were a lot of issues that on the product and technology side that we had to address extremely quickly. And they'd actually tried to hire me two years earlier. I didn't want the job at that point, And then I took it as they were moving into year four. So there it was clear that acquisition was the goal. It was never explicitly stated, but that was the exit event. And that was the inevitability, especially with HelloFresh moving more and more into the Canadian market and just becoming a global, I guess, like juggernaut in the space. At the time, when I came on, HelloFresh was in 12 different countries. 11 of which, it was the number one meal kit delivery company. It had just surpassed Blue Apron in the U.S. at that point. And we were actually the only, Canada was the only territory where they weren't number one. Yeah, so they were really aggressively moving in Canada because they wanted that number one. The market was obviously feasible because there was, given Canada's population, and the vast scope in terms of land mass of the country. I was always surprised that it worked, right? So you, you don't have a lot of big metropolitan hubs near one another. So the cost of moving food, especially in a lot of you know, the climates are unforgiving is very high. So, yes, they were aggressively pushing in the market and we were trying to defend against that. And obviously we were not funded by rocket Internet. They were. And so a lot of it was, you know, how do we defend our incumbent position? From a marketing perspective, without the same amount of dollars and expertise that HelloFresh has, and from a technology position, without those funds to really scale up. You know, HelloTech has a team of 200 engineers, I had a team of 12. So it was a very interesting position to be in, and one that I think there's only one outcome, right? Is that we are not going to last, we were not at quite a profitability yet, so it was a bloodbath, right? It was money, 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 money. So anyway, to answer your question, that was a very different experience and largely informed my personal decision when I decided to move to Smile Back because Smileback has come to Berlin instead of in Toronto. It's a very different scene, as you would know, being here as well, just in terms of the market for technology and the market for resources, who build technology. So I was interested in that. Swallowed back the company I'm at now. It's a bootstrap company. It's owned largely by the two founders. And then there's five of us. So me and my now business partner and our CEO in the U.S who own it and basically make up the leadership team and the decisions. And it's a very different market than meal kits. So what I wanted was to do something different, to do something where sort of 10Xing, 20Xing the business wasn't the goal. And where I felt like the product I was building was very useful, right? I was making decisions based on the utility to the market and to my customer rather than trying to prove I guess, the business case of a category, which was very much what we were doing at Chessplate, which was very interesting, super, super interesting, super sexy. What I do know is not, but I quite like it. The journey was one of focusing at this point in my life on the things that are interesting to me, less than the things that would more constitute like success in a grander business sense.
1: So previously then at Chessplate, it was clear to you that the goal was to exit. It was yeah. a finite game, yeah. right? And you had then tried to wrangle an entire team that had no product management in it. Can you describe what that looked like in that? what you inherited and then what happened after Yeah, yeah to get to that success, right? That's
0: a good question. So it was a pretty interesting environment for that reason. For one, the technology had got to the place it was. And the interface with the customer was a, at that point, just a web app, right? It was a website. And most of the technology resources were going towards the operational technologies, so internal technologies. So we had something called Ops Manager. We had something called Production Assistant, and we had something called up server, And we had actually quite a, I would say, a modern tech stack in the sense that our DB was Mongo, all of our apps were built in React, it was pretty cool. I'd never been in such a kind of like, modern, exciting tech stack. I'd obviously used all those technologies because I was a consultant before. But so that was interesting in and of itself. You know, it's a non-SQL database, right? So that created certain things in the business. And then more broadly, in the business, there was a real lack of understanding even of what product management is because product was, in the business's mind, a culinary function. So when they talked about product, they meant food. And typically, when we talk about product, we mean us, right? And it was actually for an internet-based business that could not exist without the internet, that was a startup, it was not tech-savvy at all. There's very much an operational culture in the facilities, and then there was a culinary culture in the kitchen, and procurement, culinary, and operations all worked somewhat well together. But yeah, it's just kind of much more of a manufacturing mindset and distribution mindset, which is very different than from what I do. So no one even understood when I came to the organization, it wasn't on my team, what product management was. So I think that was actually the first challenge was how do we, and the people that hired me were very much aware of this and they sort of said, your job is not only to do the function, but to bring the function to the organization, have everyone buy into the idea that this is useful. And so it was a much broader role, I guess, in some senses than product management is normally but it often can be I can hear my rings clanking so that was number one that was challenge number one and yeah then challenge number two is that my boss the CTO had done all of the product management and design we actually didn't ever have a UX designer there was only a marketing creative graphic designer until the acquisition by HelloFresh. But we didn't have QAs so we were missing a lot of pieces when I got there. And four years in 50 million dollar business, I think in a lot of ways probably pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. So my actual first step had nothing to do with my teams. I was put on like the larger senior leadership team and played a very active role in that and trying to have the inner organization understand what product does, how it brings everybody together, and also just how process can drive outcomes because we had, and I think this is probably true of many businesses, especially startups, we were starting a lot of things and never finishing them or taking on projects across the organization that had dependencies on other departments in the organization, and no one thought to talk about them and identify them early and mitigate risk. So that was pretty challenging, especially when you have operations on a facility floor. And this was really interesting for me because I'd never experienced that. I mean, technology can get burned in terms of downstream from marketing decisions. Operations can get burned even worse, right? They're not agile. They can't just kind of change things on the fly or break their momentum. You know, these are million-dollar machines that are pushing food that will go bad the next day. So how did you
1: wrangle that then, right? So. You had to define what product was. Yeah. How did you define what product was to an organization that thought product was operations or was, was food? Yeah. It was
0: food. Was food. So I mean, because I've been a consultant before, this wasn't really new to me. It felt the same. It was I felt like I was being dropped into an organization. I just had to really quickly get traction, right? My approach then and has always been just figure out some small problem I can solve for someone, whether it's a problem that necessarily is within my remit or not to demonstrate value. So I immediately started with marketing and I knew that they had a very big one of you know their – I can't remember what they're called in marketing – but like a quarterstone campaign for the year, you know? This is the big campaign we're doing this year. And they needed help in terms of, because they weren't technical, they didn't really know, and they were more CPG marketers. They never worked with e-commerce in the same way. So I was helping them understand user flows in terms of someone seeing an asset in the market, seeing an ad, what do they expect, what do they want, where do they go next, oh, a landing page, oh, then from a landing page, we need to collect their email, from the email we need to do this and sort of walk through a customer journey like that on the internet. And that was really cool because I learned a lot about the marketing side of the business. I learned a lot about who our customer was. It was a good way for me to learn some shit while also providing some value to another team who had never worked with a product person before, right? And so I think that was pretty effective. And then my next thing was, okay, how can I get culinary on board? Because they're probably feeling threatened by, they have the title product, I have the title product, what do I do? So I was trying to understand from a process standpoint, because they make recipes, right? The recipes from a technology lens are data. Right, and we need to get that data. We need it to be structured. We need it to be in a format. We need to get it on the internet so that our customers can look at the recipe and go, "Ooh, I want to eat that. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to put in my bag this week." Right, and they had a really messy, very manual, very like writing things down process, which I was only aware of because, yeah, we would have a lot of issues in terms of the data would be changing or be overwritten or when it'd be handed to us, we'd always have to like redo it and restructure it and get into the formats we needed. So it would display consistently on the website and in the backend things that operations were using for their putting ingredients in a bag, right? So there's so many downstream dependencies on this from the culinary team saying, this is what the recipe looks like. This is what needs to be in it. Operation procurement, getting those ingredients. Operations putting them in the bags, so of getting them into the facility. And then that being delivered to the end user. So this
1: really is waterfall. It has to be by default. Yes. And so then how did you all at the executive level organize this on top of knowing that you need to be able to present something for the end user so that they can click the button and all of that waterfall makes sense? What processes did you need to put in place in How did you go about that?
0: That's exactly right. There was two ways of doing things in the organization. There was one that was waterfall and it should be waterfall. And there was one that's agile and should be agile. And so those two things working together is very difficult Um, (laughs) because you're in two different mindsets. And both of these things are happening concurrently and each has dependencies on the other. I mean, it makes sense when you're in it, in the sense that the process I described that's very waterfall, yes, that was waterfall. And so technology would need to work in a waterfall cycle and with the teams on that because we were the least important piece there, right? Of course, we were critical in terms of the user making their selections upfront, but we could play into a waterfall framework there. And then in terms of delivering code, because that waterfall process actually hit, there was no code involved, right? Mm -hmm. It was just recipes that were data. So we were just updating a database. We weren't delivering feature functionality, actual code. And then our code was delivered in an agile framework. But that meant too, that as a product person, I had to manage a waterfall process with the other teams, an agile process for my teams. And I had to manage products that were customer facing B2B And where the bulk of my team was working, because this was the most important product in certain senses was ops manager, right? Which is with waterfall stakeholders who work on facility floors and we're trying to incrementally improve this technology that we've built from scratch to make it better and better for them whose processes aren't changing. And in some ways that's easier, right? Because I knew exactly what they would be doing and it was just, how do I build a roadmap to make this optimal, but. At the same time, I'm having to constantly teach them, oh, we've updated this feature, so now you do it this way. we updated this feature, so now you do it this way. And they're used to just things always being the same. Mm. So I have to convince them, it's better for you. Trust me, it's better for you. It's going to make everything more efficient. We're going to drive down our costs. But now you have to learn something new every two weeks, every month.
1: So really, you had stakeholders internally and externally to explain what the products you were building were going to help them do whatever they were doing better, whether it was, I'm going to buy stuff that's healthy. That's going to yeah. make my life more convenient. And oh, by the way, you have internal processes. We're going to just make that a lot easier for you, but you got to learn how to do it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you have a B2B and a B2C, right? Yeah. B2C is the business, it's the business and B2B is the teams. And Typically, you would just buy an ERP or something like this off-the-shelf technology. But the need, and our CTO had a very specific philosophy on this, was that for whatever is unique to the business, you need to have unique technology. And there's so many things unique about the meal kit delivery business, right, is that It's just in time. We have no inventory. We can't have inventory. We change our merchandising every week, if you think about the menu as the merchandise. So we're constantly changing the merchandise, liquidating our inventory, bringing in new inventory, re-merchandising, right? And we're doing this all in real time, effectively. So it's super interesting, but it also means there's no technology that meets it. And this was validated. Hellfresh did a very similar. Their trajectory was the same in terms of they had to build all this operational technology from scratch. And so, yeah, as a product person, you really had to learn a lot about these different business units. And they obviously can't be an expert in everyone else's business unit, but you have to know enough to be effective right. to help them because they're not necessarily super-technical, they're not thinking about it in this way, and so we really have to have really good meetings where I would understand their problem and how their processes work so that I could solve it with technology. Because the only way we're going to be profitable, right, was driving down our marketing costs, driving down our operational costs.
1: Right. So really the lesson here was whatever is your core competency, make sure that you pay really close attention to it, and you probably want to keep that kind of power in-house rather than outsource.
0: We had to in that case. I think it's a very unique business with very unique technology needs. Yes,
1: totally. Makes sense. But there are things then kind of connecting here. You had a lot of moving parts. How do you describe that product strategy?
0: Yeah, so that was hard because how do I make a decision between building something for the B2C tech stack or the B2B? One's driving the business forward in terms of Delivering value to the user, one's driving the business forward in terms of operational efficiency, in terms of driving down costs, and is also in an indirect way, making the user experience better. Because what that end user cares more about than a good experience on the website is that their food gets them on time and intact. And so the better our operational technologies, the fewer orders we'd have that go wrong and that was a key metric for the business was I can't remember what the percentage was of perfect orders we call them, which meant they were delivered on time to the right location, and all the food was perfectly intact. So yeah, optimizing across that with one product person, or one like technical product person, and a back-end team and a front end team and you know not a small team, but still 12 engineers is not so much. Or no, it was eight and then plus director of engineering, DevOps me and the CTO. So my approach was to have a optimization stream that was for the ops technologies. We never needed, there's one incident, but we'll move that out. We didn't need projects, right? We didn't need massive new deliveries of features and functionality. We needed to incrementally improve the technologies and chip away every week at a couple percent, a couple points right? So that was a, for the most part, finite amount of resources, right? Every sprint, we do this much incremental optimization on the, let's call it back of house stuff. Then on the front end, we would take marketing needs, existing customer needs, new features and functionality, and all that would have to be taken in the backlog and prioritized. And then when you looked at the business, we actually had for a kit delivery business, very good retention which is surprising. Retention is very, very bad in that. And relative to other businesses, we were bad, but relative to our competitors, we were very good. So we focused very much on one top of funnel. So how can we optimize the first purchase, first box, and then to the second box. Getting them to that second box was key. Those were like the two key metrics. Order the first box, which is the funnel. And then from the time they make that first order to the time They're going to get the menu for the second order. These are two different strategies. So we focus on that. And then mobile. We didn't have a mobile app.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. In those four years? Yeah. That wasn't part of the strategy for the business at all? So the
0: CTO always wanted that. He had a hard time getting buy-in on it, and they didn't have someone who could do it. They Mm -hmm. had no engineers with mobile experience. They had no one in the organization who'd worked on a mobile app in any way. So I think they were quite scared of it. I built quite a few, but were almost exclusively as a consultant, actually. And so that was the big project. And from all the strategic work I did in research, everything suggested that especially if we wanted to increase the retention piece, even though that was already pretty good. And just from a pure marketing standpoint, I can't remember what our marketing person called it, but a much more like dating model, right, approach, where we could then, with a landing page, have someone land there. Instead of saying, sign up now, we could say, download our app, and then they could look through the menus, they could cook from the recipes on a weekly basis and eventually order, right? So there was an acquisition plan with that as well. So all the research suggests that this would improve our business. It did dramatically our second order rate was increased by like a hundred percent like holy smokes yeah with people on the app it was a smaller user population but they were way better customers than on the website so that was yeah super interesting
1: so when you were thinking through how to ensure everyone was focusing on the right metrics right like it sounds like you've kind of talked through it but can you concretely talk through like what was the north star metric
0: this is where things kind of Didn't work out so well. Oh, really? Yeah, and we're at a while back now as a lesson learned from that, having this framework for the key metrics for the business that are socialized, everyone is committed to, everyone understands. Everyone knows them. Everyone knows them. Everyone knows how they all relate to one another. This was a big challenge that Jeff's played. And I attribute that, honestly, to the maturity of the founders because it was their first business, they were young, and they liked to keep a lot of their cards very close to their chest. And so there's only a few people in the business. Luckily, I was one of them who actually had access to all the business data, could see all the numbers and knew roughly what from a kind of marketing, the highest level financial strategy we were trying to do. There's a lot of disconnect. We had a clear idea and made it very simple as I described it in terms of the product strategy and those really simple metrics of first box, second box, total boxes shipped. And then on the customer success side, we added a customer success because they would find out, but basically all of the operational metrics came to that perfect box rate, right? So whatever it was, I think it was 95% of boxes shipped for perfect boxes. And then ops and procurement were responsible for margin Right. And that created a lot of issues, though, because you had these massive disconnects where procurement is trying like, through volume or through whatever to drive down the cost of the purchases. Operations is trying to become more efficient and also through scale at the facilities and the distribution. Culinary and marketing, they're thinking only of what sells. And so you'd have this, what we call it menu mix where we had metrics for how much it should cost per plate and marketing would be like, well, if we did this, we're going to drive up the orders, right? But then you'd have a cost of, you know, 40% of the price on the food, where our metric was 25 and culinary goes, well, I want to cook this way, right? Cause they're chefs. And so they're driving the price up too. So you've got these fights constantly yeah, between there's
1: these different needs or wants, yeah, right? Yeah. So then how do you get everyone aligned?
0: I don't know. We never did. They have a lot of fighting. And I think it was challenging because the COO was responsible for culinary procurement and operations and customer success. I think he was pretty good at negotiating that. He was very good. The CEO was much more focused on the marketing side and he was the type of leader. He knew the space very well and he would sometimes rule by FIAT, by eating, and come in on something and say, no, I want to do it this way. Find the margin somewhere else. We're doing this dish. And that would cause a lot, especially because of the weekly churn of the business, that causes a lot of problems downstream. So marketing would almost always have a trump card because of the CEO, for better or worse. Sometimes it was good. Usually it wasn't. But so that was really challenging to get people aligned because there was always this wild card in the mix, which I think, in my opinion, even if the wild card produces good outcomes, and even if it produces good outcomes more often than not, in terms of sales metrics, I still think it's bad because I think unless it produces better outcomes all the time, the larger cultural ramifications produce net negative. Right? So. That an operations team is constantly preparing for this wild card and aware of this wild card could come completely changes how they approach their work.
1: Can you go into that a little bit? Culture is really important. Right. I think we all agree with that. Yeah. And it seems like there was a single person that had both the authority and the power and took it upon themselves to make these really important decisions that had far-reaching ramifications that caused people to probably behave differently than they would have otherwise. Yes. What happened?
0: Well, it would create turmoil. Mm. And I think the hard part was that because this production chain is long, and so something that happens at the top, I don't know what the word is, like the tip of the spear is manifest way, way, way downstream. And the person at the tip of the spear has no idea of these ramifications. And so it's very hard to illustrate the opportunity cost,
1: Ah.
0: right? And so that's what I would work on a lot was trying to illustrate the opportunity cost and I basically created a, uh, along with the COO, And the CTO, we created what we called governance, which was sort of us and the head of innovation, the VP of product innovation, who's culinary guy. The four of us created this thing called governance that met every week that looked at everything from a program management standpoint. It was like a PMO, project management office, and tried to see the interdependencies and have a way of quantifying or at minimum illustrating the impact of one decision on everything else because it was a matrix, nothing was discrete, right? These variables were always in flux all the time. And so in order to help make better decisions, we needed to be able to illustrate not just that decision in isolation, we needed to be able to illustrate the ramifications on everything.
1: How did you do that? Can you describe like what that ended up looking like? Because you've effectively created with this governance group, a set of processes or systems upon which everyone can work and for you to monitor. Yeah, this, monitor. That was what we were Right? Doing. You were
0: monitoring. Yeah. That. So, and I mean, it was certainly not perfect. And it wasn't even great, but it was better than it was, <laughs> I would say. Which is maybe sometimes the best you can hope for. And so we knew what BAU looked like, right? Usually people know what BAU looks like. And so, but we're also trying to add these additional pieces to the business, right? We need to grow it. We need to grow the menus. We needed to increase the offering, right? You know, we had our classic menu and our family menu. We wanted to do a 15-minute meal menu, so this is like quick and easy stuff. We wanted to do a vegetarian menu. These are big projects that radically change the business and everything about it. So anything like that, and then we have marketing projects that were week-to-week campaigns. So anything that was outside of BAU needed a structure. It needed a project charter. We needed to identify who was involved with the project, what the scope of it was. We could never get budget for some reason, but try to roughly figure out what the budget was. And then anytime there was a change from the projects or BAU, we could see, okay, if that happens, here's how it affects all of these things, right? If we up, The margin on this week's menu mix, right? It affects the business in all these ways. And our procurement team is going to be only focused on this. So no one can focus on these other projects, right? Culinary is going to have to pull in the innovation person who is not working on BAU because they only have one week to create this brand new menu. Does that make sense?
1: So there was like a forcing function through this governance for everyone to be, it sounds like, transparent as much as they
0: could. For leadership to see the impact of their actions. I would say it was an attempt. And ostensibly it was to govern those new projects. But obviously risks to the new projects were presented from anything in BAU being treated like a new project that's risk. And so it would come up here. So we started to see, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. We didn't get this thing done against our project, right? We're checking in because the risk was that person just couldn't do the work because they got pulled in here. And so it started to just show more and more visibility. The intention was never to shine the lens on BAU was to govern these new projects, but it just kind of worked that way because by identifying the risk, we realized the risks were just in the day-to-day management of the business.
1: Can you define what BAU is? Oh, business as usual
0: activities. Okay. Yes. The regular day-to-day doing the thing that your business does.
1: So it seems whenever you have a startup and you know that the exit strategy is that you're going to have an acquisition, business as usual doesn't really cut it.
0: Yes, exactly. You
1: have to 10x, 20x, 100x the business. How did you balance this, right, against the BAU where... You've got the waterfall happening, Agile happening, because you have two different parts yeah. of the business, B2B and B2C that you were talking about. And yeah, and then
0: plus this other dimension right. of what makes us attractive right. to an acquisition. And we had no idea. Like, HelloFresh was not on the radar. That was a surprise. So we were looking at our exit strategy was focused on grocery. So we were looking at big Canadian grocers who wanted to have the technology, and I mean this from both... a information technologies and a a brain, like knowledge technology, to be able to add meal kits to their grocery business. So rather than it being a business category, it would be a category within their business, Mm. right? They'd have going to the grocery store and picking up your groceries. And a delivery service. And a delivery service. And both of those, if you could get your groceries delivered, you could also get your meal kits delivered. If you're at the grocery store and you're like, oh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Oh yeah, chef's plate meal kit. Grab it. Go. Right? Yeah, and grocers were very interested in this because it makes a lot of sense. They already have the operational infrastructure in place, so all they needed was the knowledge on how to make a product that consumers liked right? Our big problem was, yeah, we need to market, we need to establish the category, and we didn't have this massive distribution network already, so our costs were super high. For them, they've got all this stuff, right? They're just putting it together, adding some margin on it, and selling to their existing customers. So we were in talks with a lot of grocers in Canada, and that's what we were focused on. So yes, proving that there was a market, so 10x, 20x was part of it, but there was also things that would be attractive, And so that's also where the mobile app was interesting, right? They could buy us and get mobile technology, right? Which they didn't have for their existing stuff. They needed the ops, because we built ops manager from scratch, that was very appealing, right? These were technologies they did not have. These are new technologies, it was an asset to them. So we're also building assets. So to answer your question, so yeah, there's this other wrinkle around, okay, we're running a business, we're trying to do projects to improve that business, and we're also trying to create these assets that would be shiny, I guess, for a potential acquirer, especially one that's massive, massive, massive. How is right? this
1: explained to the organization, it or wasn't, was it, it ever? Wasn't.
0: No, definitely not.
1: And so people were just producing and yes. doing their stuff.
0: Yeah. While doing their things,
1: leadership was thinking through all the myriad yes. parts of the business to orchestrate this yes. and keeping themselves in the loop. Yeah through this governance group to see where the projects
0: would go. Yeah, And all that, what I just said too, was luckily the CTO was employee, I think number one. and We were very close, he's my boss. And so he was able to give me a lot of insight like this, but there's only a handful of people who were in the loop. I was not one of them, only through Thomas did I know this stuff. And then experienced people who just, you know, you see, after a while you just start to see the signs and you can quickly infer what's going on.
1: We get asked a lot at GTM Hub, What do you do when a team fails to deliver or meet the outcomes you expect? Or what do you do when a team succeeds, right? Did you have a culture of reflection? Presumably, yes, definitely on the agile part because it's part of agile methodology. It's like retrospectives. How did you inject that,
0: if at all? I would say, and they actually didn't have an agile methodology when I got there. It was just... Just go. There's no sprints, nothing. It was agile, but there's no process, no structure, which is really interesting. So starting retros with the team was definitely (laughs) one of those mechanisms. I honestly don't remember if we ever had anything like that. I think it was just go, go, go all the time. How
1: do you keep people motivated? What is motivating these people?
0: I don't know. I mean, with the tech team, we were important, so we had a lot of leeway. And we were very close to the customer. We sat with customer success very intentionally. We solved a lot of problems for them using technologies and we would just often just be support basically. And so we really just looked at what are our customers saying? And then get
1: excited about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we mostly just got excited about helping customers Looking at the numbers around long-time customers, this wasn't disconnected from business goals. It was just what made us feel good. And delivering code to production, right? I mean, we took a team. I got to take two and a half engineers and build who never wrote a line of mobile code before. Never been on a mobile project. We had no designer. And you just did it. And we just did it together. We built an app in six months. And it was pretty good. So that was a success too although i wouldn't recommend that for a business right because we're making our own successes they're not the team's successes and learning from that at smileback we use a framework and i really like very quickly identifying like almost a project management approach of identifying risks and dealing with them right away so every department has a weekly meeting we have a scorecard, which are metrics that are inherent from the company scorecard. We look at that religiously as our metrics for success. And we create issues that we spend basically the whole meeting. The goal is just to identify issues and resolve issues. And so it's, we're very quick to figure out if something's not going well, because we've configured a system that identifies that for us using numbers. And then we have a system that we've all bought into that gives us a framework. By which we talk about these things and then we resolve them. We probably are better right now at identifying issues and talking about those than we are at celebrating success. Although we did at the end of the year, kind of, we looked back and went, "Oh, we had a really good year." Uh, you know, we, and for bootstrap business, we grew revenue, grew by about twenty-five percent. We achieved all a bunch of things. We didn't achieve these things, but we delivered on more of. The projects and goals that we set out at the beginning of the year than not. So I think that's good. Although also I think with the framework, there's a level of equanimity in the sense that we don't think of an issue as a bad thing. Right? So we're not as much looking for, okay, things went wrong, this is bad, things went right, this is good, things went wrong, we need to like come to Jesus, things went right, we need to go have a party. It's just more... You just kind of get up, go, do your thing, be good soldiers, for lack of a better word, and then it's kind of, we know whether we succeeded or failed, and the day-to-day is where the success and failure, celebration, and whatever the opposite of celebration is. I like that. I honestly don't know if there's more of a craving for bigger moments, positive or negative, in the company. Yeah, so... I should
1: probably ask
0: them.
1: Would it be fair to say, then, just... The intrinsic motivation or gratification of learning and achieving what it is that you set out to do might very well be enough.
0: At Smileback, it seems so. Yes, for me personally, most definitely. And we also, that's the culture. We're very upfront about that. And when we hire, and so we tend to get people who see that and go, oh, that sounds like something I would like. I'd say that's atypical for Mm. a startup or a small company. Usually there's much more... Because there's such highs and lows. It attracts people who are interested in highs and lows, which is also good. We're just more like steady eddies.
1: We've talked about smellback a little bit. You've mentioned that your team is a partially distributed team, right? How do you manage this? That's probably the hardest of all setups for a business, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, especially when... Sometimes not everyone speaks the same language. And I mean that literally. Our business language in the company is English. And yeah, there are some distributed team members who their English is not great. So you have two mitigating factors in communication that you have. They're not there. They're in different time zones, three actually, and they don't necessarily speak the same language as the rest of the team. So it can be quite hard. I think where in this one case where we're having success So our engineering team is distributed. The project lead, or the team lead, is very strong. He's the least technical on the team, but the most process and people-oriented. And he takes great pride in doing good work. He's a QA. It's the first time I ever had a QA team lead. And at first I thought, oh, I don't know about that. But it works. Totally works. And it's because he's the right person for it. We also, I think stand-ups are incredibly important to have a touch point every day. We always make sure it's a video of stand-up, so we see one another's faces, and we have little rituals. I think mean, stand-up is a ritual, but we have like what normal people would consider rituals that we do with it, too, that are totally organic. We're big Liverpool football fans, so at the end of every stand-up, we go, Jürgen Klopp, and we all clop. And that's because <laughs> someone couldn't pronounce clap and kept saying Klopp, so we just called it the Jürgen Klopp. So that's fun. And then same with, so we have some distributed team members and other business units as well. And my message to them is always the stand up is the most important thing because you can't just slack. It's not good enough just to slack. And then we also, I go to Ukraine where the bulk of the distributed team is every other month and work with them there. And we bring everyone together twice a year. 2%. It works more or less. I think though, the challenges and it also works for us because we're bootstrap, we're not scaling rapidly, we're growing incrementally. So we can deal with issues as they come up. We don't have massive scaling problems. So I think these are luxuries in a lot of ways. Definitely. Yeah.
1: So you've had a very, very career, right? You started yeah. not in tech. When did you do prior to tech? As was a journalist. That's right? Yes, I'm a writer. When you look back at your career and all the different hats you've worn, and all the things that you've ever done... What are some things that you would probably tell a younger Andrew now? Like, here's some advice,
0: man. I mean, I would probably say don't sweat it so much. I tend to be very detail-oriented, and I can get pretty into the details all the time. I would try to say this to myself right now, too. Yeah. I was even talking to a friend about it last night. Yeah, I've never been good at just seeing things at the high level are working, and so just kind of let it ride. I like to take responsibility for every little thing and it works, but it's not optimal, I think, in a lot of ways. and I think especially when I was a journalist, it's a really cool industry. It's a really hard industry right now because of all the changes and, you know, you're watching the business around you crumble, creates a lot of anxiety. And so, which made me even more prone to getting really stressed out about, like, every little detail. So, yeah, I would definitely say that to me. I mean, this is just from transitioning to tech and why I transition to tech. I just like the team element of it. Journalism is a much more individualistic. Yeah, solo sport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's swimming. And, like, the team is what makes it fun, right? And so kind of gravitate. If I had known that that's what I would have been good at and that's what I like doing, I probably would have started doing that a lot earlier. Mm. So I'm not sure that's so transferable to other people, but that's what this Andrew would say to that Andrew. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So you've worked in these two businesses now. We talk about the importance of mission, vision, strategy, making sure you're executing. What was the dream when you had entered in with Chef's Table? Like what was the dream? Chef's Plate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think that was part of the problem is that it grew so fast that, I'm not sure anyone was quite sure what the vision was. I mean, I think at a certain level, it was prove this thing works, Mm. right? Make this work. First to market in Canada, certainly one of the first meal kit companies. And, you know, basically just copied Blue Apron in the U.S. and did it in Canada. And so make it work. It's not an easy business. Operational things we discussed. So I really think that was the vision. And I think that that was maybe okay Year one, year two, and probably was one of the downfalls year three onwards, right? Is that we needed something more than just making it work because it was working. Right. Yeah.
1: Why are we here and where are we going?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And now and smile back, is it very clear to you? Like yeah. what's the dream?
0: Yeah, we were talking about this actually at our end of year, and I think it's gonna sound funny, so I'm a little cagey about saying it, but we don't really have a dream per se. Or maybe this is a dream. We're very pragmatic. And again, the study anything is that we do a very specific thing. We do it really well. And we're very tight with our customers. Like we have 800 who we talk to, like kind of regularly, you know? And our dream is just to continue to deliver a really good product that's really useful for this really small, specific segment. That's really it. And we want to come in and do a good job and then go. It's a very simple dream.
1: It's a simple dream. Yeah. You know what? That's okay. Simple dreams are good.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks so much for coming in to speak with us today That's on this podcast. Yeah, it was great catching up and learned a lot. So hopefully the folks who are listening in can take away some interesting tidbits also. Yeah,
0: i talked a lot. I don't need to talk that much. I was, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.